our New Testament reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death, and everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter. Because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut shut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this passage, and we ask now for your help. We come humbly asking that we would hear your voice. Open our ears that we would hear you speaking now. 
and may you alone be glorified. In your holy name we pray, amen. This morning, before uh, services began, one of my fellow pastors came to me and said his wife was reading this passage in preparation for worship this morning and said, ooh, that's a doozy. And boy, is she right. It is. (laughs) Uh, Today, we come to perhaps the most difficult and debated passage in the entire Gospel of Mark, arguably the most debated and controversial passage in the entire New Testament. It's hard to understand. It's technical in the Greek in so many ways. You know, it's not a feel-good passage. <laughs> so if you, you, know, you just want to feel good this morning. If, and it's not hard. I mean, it's, it's very hard to apply. There's a lot going against it. And that may be why you don't find a lot of sermons online on Mark 13. You go to commentaries, but you can research the sermons. There's not a lot out there. And it tells me either the guys got into it and they said, I'm skipping this one, which was very tempting this week for me. Um, I know, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> or they preached it and it just didn't make the podcast. <laughs> and after first service, Dave said, odds are 50-50 whether this one makes the podcast. So we'll see. <laughs> you know? um, what I'm going to do this morning, this is a very long passage. I'm going to try to give you enough so that you can understand it and maybe take it and apply it some on your own but hopefully understand it. And I mentioned this is a very controversial, highly debated passage, and there's good reason for it, and here's why. I'm calling this the end of the world as they knew it, a little REM reference there, but um, the central problem is this. What is Jesus talking about in verses 1 to 31, all right? Is he talking about two subjects or one? And the debate is, is it all about the destruction of the temple? All commentators and people who study this say absolutely verses 1 to 23 are all about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Okay, so there's no debate there. Here's where the debate comes in. Verses 24 to 27, they say, well, now he's talking about the end times, his second coming. Here's why that's a problem, because after verses 24 to 27, you read 28 to 31, and in verse 30, Jesus says this, truly, this is one of his amen statements, truly, amen, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And here's why it's a problem. Because everywhere else in the Gospels, not just Mark, but in all the Gospels, when Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, he is always referring to people living at the same time as him. Okay, I hope you see why this is a problem. Because if you say that Jesus switches to now he's talking about second coming at the end of time in verses 24 to 27... But then after that, he says, amen, this generation is not going anywhere until all these things have happened. There's the problem. It's such a, and we we don't treat this lightly. 
Too many evangelicals do, and if you do treat it lightly, you're really treating God's Word lightly, and in my opinion, you're doing great harm, because what people will do is they'll, they'll do hermeneutical gymnastics with the text, trying to explain away this problem in various ways so that it's talking about the end times in 24 to 27, and yet Jesus, well, when he says this generation, he really means just mankind in general or all kinds. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that gets put out there. Big problem. Bertrand Russell, if you know him, uh, philosopher, uh, skeptic, he wrote a famous uh, essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. He gave many reasons why, but central to why he's not a Christian is this passage we have today in Mark 13, what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And Russell even said this, even despite the fact that Jesus was so spot on in his predictions about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, the mere fact that he said he was coming again in that generation and didn't discredits him completely. And so I must reject everything about him. It, which, if you logically apply the way some people do, well, Brussels right. It does discredit Jesus if you hold that 24 to 27 is about second coming. So what I'm praying, pray, prayerful for this morning is that we will humbly approach this text with integrity as God's Word demands and so, if you're visiting, this is going to be a little more technical than a lot of things just because of the passage. And here's what I'm going to share. I firmly believe that verses 1 to 31 can and should be read as referencing the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, and that all of it, all of 1 through 31, is referencing that event. And you don't have to make that switch in verse 24 like some people do. I also believe that in verse 32, which we'll get to next week, that is when, because very clearly in the Greek there, Jesus does a shift, and then that's starting to talk about second coming, but not before verse 32. So, with that in mind, we'll jump into this. First, we'll start with the temple. We read, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now think about this. They're still in the temple complex. Jesus has already ticked off every class of religious leader there is. They're all mad at him. And now what he does is basically seals his fate by speaking against the most treasured thing of the Jews, the temple itself. Because the temple marked... Israel as God's people, symbolizing you know, God's presence in their midst, his favor with them. And Jesus says, you see this? Yeah, it's big and beautiful. It's all going away. It is going to become completely irrelevant. Whoa. The temple, you know, in this picture that is also on your bulletin, it does not do justice to the temple complex. This was one of the wonders of the Roman world. It is magnificent. And this little picture here, you need to imagine that the temple is not just that central building, it's the whole complex, which is more than 35 acres. It's like a small community college campus there. It took up up to one-third of all of Jerusalem. 
Now, this wasn't the first temple. Remember, the first one was destroyed. This is the second temple that got rebuilt. And then many years, even before the time of Christ, Herod the Great started doing this great construction campaign on the temple. Herod, awful, wicked, despicable, cruel ruler, great builder. I mean, just fantastic builder. And there are many things that he built, and this is one of them. And just, just to give you some sense, it's, uh, I said, more than 35 acres, one and a half million square feet. That's just ground level, not including the upper tiers of the buildings and all that. The columns there in the middle, so large, they said three very big men going like this, touching fingertips, could not encircle one of those columns. The stones on the walls, 12 feet high, 12 feet high, by 40 feet long, one stone. This is massive. It's just, and Jesus is saying, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. It's all coming down. Unbelievable. Uh, People called it a snow-capped mountain because there was so much white and gold in the temple complex itself, it looked like this mountain coming up just with this white and gold cap at the top, and people would talk about how during the day when the sun hit it, it could literally blind you. It was so magnificent. Herod did this building campaign for a great reason, a personal reason to him. He wanted Jerusalem to become a metropolis that all of Rome would be proud of. And so what he did is he started doing, taking the second temple, building this great complex, and here's the problem with what he did. As he built it up and started doing all this stuff with it, what was the purpose of the original temple? To worship God, right? It's where sacrifices and all the worship of God took place, and yet as Herod built it, it took on other dimensions and purposes. The temple not only became a center for religious activity, it became a commercial, financial, and political center. Okay, all of these things, commerce, finance, and politics, are now all taking place in the temple. So the temple shifted from being a place of mercy, compassion, and faith exclusively to a place representing worldly glory. And that was Herod's intent. You, you know this just by if you travel the world or just think about the world. Buildings often represent what a city is all about. If you've been to Paris, you know this. You go and you see the Louvre, you see the Eiffel Tower there in the background, there's the Grand Ballet Hall, so many other things. The buildings tell you this. Paris is a cultural center. That's what Paris is all about, and the buildings reflect it. Go to Washington, D.C., go to the White House, the Capitol, go to the monuments, all the buildings there. They are meant to tell you that this place is a political center. The buildings reflect the values and the importance of the city. It's interesting if you think about Charlotte. What's on our skyline? Well, you see a big stadium and a coliseum way back there on the other side, Uh, You know, so you would assume Charlotte's about sports and finance. Those are the things we worship here in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
the temple shifted from a place of worship to a place of worldly glory. Big problem. Power, beauty, finance are all worshipped in the temple complex. Does it make sense now why Jesus, when he went in and cleared the temple and said, you have made my father's house not a house of prayer, but a den of thieves? This is some of what he's referencing, the shift that's taking place. So now the disciples, when Jesus says, so as glorious as this thing is, it's all coming down. They're like, "Uh, say what, Jesus? (laughs) No, uh, no. What does this mean? What's next? How in the world are we ever going to worship? You can't, they are dumbfounded. This would have shocked them that Jesus would make such a statement. And so we see that they go up on the Mount of Olives and four of his disciples come to him and say, tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Funny to me, remember, Jesus has already predicted his own death. Not one question. Brothers, I'm about to die, and you'll see the Son of Man raised up. Yeah, okay, good, Jesus. The temple's coming down. Whoa, stop! Jesus, what are you talking about? This is funny. They valued something greatly in the temple. And if you look at their question, tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? They want to know, exclusively, when will the temple be destroyed and how will we know it's about to happen? And the question does not suggest in any way that there's anything else they are asking about. Just that. When and how will we know it's about to happen? So, Jesus goes on and he says this, watch out that no one deceives you. These are the early tremors prior to the destruction. Many will come claiming, I am he. And just sideline, I am he, that's what Jesus, that's Jesus' that's the most holy name of God. I am, ego a me. Many will come saying, I am, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes, famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So what he's saying is there's going to be false messiahs, false prophets, wars, rumors, and natural disasters. And if you know history between the time of when Jesus spoke this and AD 70, all of that happened in great abundance, just like it happens in great abundance today. These are general things. He's saying, this is going to happen. Don't freak out. These are just the early tremors that something's coming. Now, particularly notice it's verse 8 where he says these are the beginnings of birth pains. This is a key to understanding the whole text in a big sense. So if you want to fall asleep in a moment, you can, I guess. Um, But if you understand birth pains, this is not a new statement by Jesus. He is actually taking something from the prophets. Because the prophets, the Old Testament, you know, these are the big guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and also all the minor prophets. They regularly use the phrase birth pains. And the way they used it was this, the world is going to go through birth pains as Messiah brings the new world into being. The world is going to go through these pains and these aches so that as the kingdom comes, is born. You see what what they were saying? Jesus is saying the same thing. 
he's using this image of birth pain saying there's something going away and I'm bringing something new in. In fact, I'm the Messiah that all the prophets spoke about bringing in the brand new thing. See, this picture of birth pains was used by centuries, for centuries by the Jews, to talk about God bringing in his new order of justice, peace, rule of Messiah. The prophets spoke of this, and Jesus uses the same pregnant, pun intended, language of the prophets to talk about what he's doing. His life, his words, his work on the cross and afterwards, all are going to what bring in the new order. Something wonderful is coming. Guys, I know this is freaking you out. The temple's going away. That's part of the birth pains for the wonderful thing. You know, I, I wasn't present for any of the birth of my children because they're all adopted. I'm kind of thankful for that, honestly. <laughs> there's great pain, but there's something wonderful coming. Jesus is saying there's going to be great pain, but there's going to be something wonderful coming. And he goes on, you must be on your guard. You're going to be handed over, over. You're going to stand before people. You're going to be flogged. All this stuff is going to happen. And the gospel is going to be preached to the nations. When you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry about what you're going to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it's not you speaking, but Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So, Jesus here is saying there's going to be suffering, persecution, standing trial, but here's the good news. As all of that's happening, the gospel is going to go out into all the known world. Doesn't this sound a lot like the book of Acts? Yes, there's a reason, because it is. Everything that takes place in Acts, this is what he's referencing here. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to faithfulness in this. And the verse about don't worry about what you say beforehand, Christians love to take that one out of context. And they say, you know, if you're teaching a Bible study or preparing a sermon, don't, don't study, don't work at it, because it's showing a lack of faith if you do. Just stand up there and say whatever Holy Spirit gives you in the moment. That's not what it's saying. This is not an excuse for lack of preparation in teaching. Trust me. You don't want that. And if I had done it this week, this whole sermon would be more of a train wreck than it already is. It's not an excuse. It's saying to uneducated people largely in the first century, when you stand before the power brokers of the day and they're looking down at you from their thrones calling you to testify, do you really claim the name of Jesus Christ, or are we going to kill you like we've killed all these other people? Don't worry. Holy Spirit will tell you what to say in that moment. And what we see from history is all of these things happened leading up to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. The language here, and even the, even the family members turning on each other, it happened in great numbers, great numbers. Why did they do it? To save their neck because of persecution. Persecu and, and know this, just, just a little side note here. 
Persecution is the normal state of the church of Jesus Christ. That's the normal state throughout all of time and around the world. What we have here in America is the abnormal state of Christianity. And, and, you know, it's wonderful to be free, isn't it, and to worship freely and to gather without any fear. It's wonderful, but it's also a big problem. Open Doors just released their 2018 map of persecution around the world, and they show the top 50 highest places where persecution is happening, North Korea being number one. You can see India there is number 11. And you would think that when persecution is happening, the church is dying. Do you realize just the opposite is taking place? In these places where persecution is happening the most, the gospel's flourishing. And people are spreading the good news like crazy. You, if you were here when Caleb was here from India, and he was talking a little bit about persecution, he said, don't pray that it stops when you pray for us. Pray that we're faithful, because that's what Christians do. I think that he is simply referencing what Jesus was saying here. Let us be faithful. Here's our problem. We have a great history of the light of Jesus Christ shining in this country, and we're free. You know what the temptation with that is? We grow sleepy in the light. We bask in the light we have this freedom to meet and worship and talk and own Bibles and all this kind of stuff. And you know what? You know what the, I think the biggest word that kind of characterizes Christianity in the United States compared to the rest of the world? Boredom. We're bored. Our faith is really weak. There's no fervency in our prayer. There's no passion in sharing the gospel. We're bored. We think there's not much to do. And even if there is something to do, I've got plenty of time to do it. I can pursue all my other things. And that's why the gospel is busting forth in these countries where persecution is happening. Maybe the best thing that could happen to the church in the United States is for persecution. It would probably be the best thing for the church here to get back on track. And here's my question, my friends. Why wait for that? Why wait for persecution to burst forth in this place before we get serious and wake up? Why squander our time? Why be so lazy? Pursue Him with fervency and passion, just like our brothers and sisters around the world are. May we wake up, and may it not take persecution to wake us up. William Temple said this, remember, not all that the world hates is good Christianity. It hates a lot of things, but it does hate good Christianity, and it always will. So if you do wake up, and you get fervent, and you start getting persecuted, just remember, it's exactly what Christ said would happen, and you're being just like Him when you experience it. All right, we need to keep moving. In verse 14, the mood changes. It's kind of like if you're watching a movie and the music comes creeping in and it's suspenseful and you know something's coming. That's what happens in verse 14 when we read this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, 
standing where it does not belong. Let the reader understand. Then flee to the mountains. If you're on the housetop, don't go down or enter the house to take anything out of it. Don't go, if you're in the field, don't go back and get your cloak. And how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this doesn't take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Up until this point, here's what believers are told by Jesus. Stand firm. Be faithful. Hold on. Don't move. Now, take to your heels and run like crazy. Get out of town. And how will you know to do that? The abomination that causes desolation will be the sign. Jesus is saying something's going to happen, and that's going to be your cue. Run. And I'm telling you, run. When you recognize this, don't go back into the house. Leave all of your belongings. Don't go from the field back home. Forget it. Go to the mountains. He's talking about flight that's so rapid and quick that little children, pregnant women, are having a hard time keeping up. He's saying, get out so fast. Now, so what is this sign? What's the abomination that causes desolation? Now, here's where some of the language gets very technical. If you want to study this more, you can look up Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. So that's Daniel 9, 11, and 12. Three places where the abomination of desolation is mentioned. So Daniel first spoke of this. So let's, let's understand how Daniel used this language. What he spoke of in the abomination that causes desolation is this. Pagan armies invading Jerusalem and stopping the sacrifices in the temple. And all the Jews agreed that this prophecy in Daniel 9, 11, and 12 all happened in 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem. And here's what he did. On the temple in the, Holy of, in the Holy of Holies, over the altar, he built an altar to Zeus. He took a pig and sacrificed a pig to Zeus, desecrating the temple. His armies came through, plundered things, and so the Jews all agreed. And, and sacrifice to Yahweh is ended. So Daniel, the Jews all agreed, was fulfilled when pagan armies come into Jerusalem, desecrate the temple by their presence and stop the sacrificial system, okay? That's how they all understood this abomination. So Jesus uses this language intentionally. He doesn't just randomly choose these verses. He chooses it intentionally to say, when you see an army coming to take over, No, the abomination of desolation is about to happen. And you know how first century Jews understood this? It's a long story, and I'm going to shorten it here. But after Pontius Pilate, a new governor came, and the guy was just, he was terrible. Pilate was bad, but this guy made Pilate look like one of the good guys. And so the zealots, they inspired 
so many people to rise up against this new governor, and they attacked one of the Roman fortifications, and they won. I've got a coin from this period where they won this unbelievable victory that shouldn't have won, and they minted all these coins celebrating their victory. The zealots beat the Romans, and here's what they did. They lost it mentally, and they took over the temple as their military fortification. Why? Because it's huge walls. It's very secure. Herod the Great had done a fantastic job securing this place, so they take it over, and here's what they start doing. They bring prisoners of war into the most holy place and kill them. Even though these are zealots, they didn't really care for the whole temple system, and here's how we know that. Because what they did is they got a clown named Fanny, and they made him mock high priest. It'd be, just to give you, you remember Howard Stern? It'd be like Catholics taking Howard Stern and making him the Pope. I mean, this is, this is kind of what the zealots are doing. By making fa- and so, the first century Christians, when they saw the zealots take over the temple and the worship and the sacrifices stop and the mock high priest comes in, you know what they did? They took for the hills. That was the sign the early Christians had to run and flee, and they did that. And then shortly thereafter, the Romans come in and finish the desecration of the temple. And because Jesus warned them, watch out for this, the Christians were spared while 1.1 million Jews all died. That took place in AD 70. Now, let's end here with probably the hardest part. Here's the verses 24 to 27 and following. But in those days, following that distress of the abomination that causes desolation, so he's talking about, you're going to see the zealots take over the temple, but the end is not completely done yet because here's what else you're going to see. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. You're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He'll send His angels out to gather the elect, His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All right. How in the world can this be considered fulfilled in AD 70? Here's where it requires us to be with integrity coming to Scripture and using Scripture as it tells us to use it. These, once again, just like Jesus quoted the Daniel passages a moment ago, these passages here come from the prophet Isaiah. If you want to look them up, you can find them in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. Now, here's why this is important. Imagine Ruth Ann goes back in time to a first century Jewish woman and says, stop pulling my leg. And she's going to look at her, you're crazy. I'm not holding your leg in the first place. You know, everyone in here generally would probably know what is meant by that phrase, stop pulling my leg. A first century Jew would have no clue. It's not part of their cultural context. Jesus is using something that was part of the cultural context of the Jews and quoting these Isaiah passages to say something. How were they used by Isaiah? These words taken from Isaiah, the subject was not the end of the world. 
the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from the skies and the heavenly bodies. That's not the end of the world. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about Babylon falling. Babylon the Great, the most wicked and yet powerful empire to date at that time. This, there's nothing to describe that kind of a powerful institution crumbling other than cosmic language. Jesus, so when Isaiah spoke this, it was about Babylon crumbling, not the end of the world. He's talking about a major power, a major institution ending, and a new one rising up to take its place. Remember the birth pains? It relates to the birth pains thing once again. You see, the words here are taken from these Isaiah passages, and Jesus is very intentionally answering his disciples' question by quoting the Isaiah passages. And what he's saying is, I know as I talk about the end of the temple, you think this is the end of the world. No. It's just like when Babylon fell so many centuries earlier. It's the end of an institution with something new coming into place. And he's talking about the Son of Man bringing judgment on his rebellious people. What's the something new? What's the something old? Was it something blue, something, whatever. Um, the something old that is crumbling is the Jewish institution of the temple and its sacrificial system. The something new is the kingdom of the Son of Man that's rising up to take its place. That's why Jesus uses this cosmic language to talk about, I am bringing what you've all been hoping for, and yet what you didn't realize is this wonderful thing called the temple, it's got to go away for that to fully happen. Now, that I believe is enough to explain what Jesus is saying here, but here's something that's striking to me. And I'll share this, but I'll say this in no way holds the same weight of Scripture to me, but I find it fascinating. Because you know when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the zealots get wiped out, Rome comes in, and they do desecrate the temple. And you know, Rome, literally, not one stone is left on top of another. They burned it to the ground. Why? Because there was so much gold, they were trying to get the gold out of all the things. But when the Roman armies in AD 70 marched in to take over following a siege of a couple of years, there's all these eyewitness accounts of cosmic signs taking place. And no, these accounts don't come from Christians. These accounts come from Jews, faithful Jews, and Romans, neither of whom would ever want to promote Jesus Christ and this religion that's out there. So we have one that comes from Josephus. I'll just read one. There's multiple things he writes. But Josephus was a loyalist Jew who actually tried to save Jerusalem by working with Titus, the Roman general who was coming in to destroy it. And as he records what happened when Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Here's one of the things he writes. A few days after the feast of Pentecost, on the 21st day of the month, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those that saw it. 
and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. He writes this. There are so many other accounts of chariots of fire rolling in the clouds into Jerusalem as the Roman armies. Rome took it as, these are our gods come to fight with us. Think about the biblical language. Remember Elisha? Lord, open their eyes so they can see. And you saw chariots of fire surrounding them, protecting the prophet. Here is just the opposite. Eyes are opened, and the chariots of fire roll in, the Messiah leading the war host of heaven, destroying a rebellious people. Not only is it Josephus, and there's other things that he writes about along these lines. Tacitus, a Roman historian, said this, A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. And in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. He just thinks the temple is a host of many gods. Is it true? I don't know. But what it is signifying, if it is true, is God's presence has finally left the temple. There's so many eyewitnesses' accounts along these lines. Here's what we need to understand as we wrap this up. The old order focused on a single nation and its national shrine in the capital city, but this gives way to a new order in which all nations would indeed be blessed as they find their house of prayer, not in a single building, but in a faith community that transcends all racial and political boundaries. I think there's strong merit to seeing all of verses 1 through 31 being fulfilled within the context of AD 70. Next week, we'll look at the turn that happens. Uh, We're over time, but let me apply this in some ways just for you to think about. You know, the disciples were so taken with the beauty and magnificence of the temple. I was asking myself this week, Lord, where am I caught up in beautiful grandeur Things that I value as important, and it can be any number of things. You know, pastors can get caught up in the size of a building, size of a church. Thankfully, we don't really care about that here. It's whatever the Lord wants. But sometimes that can become a thing of grandeur. Where's our hope, really? Where's our trust? Is it our bank accounts? Is it our own success? Is it people giving us praise? What do we consider magnificent? Or is it humility and holiness? It's a good question in all of this. What do we value and put our trust in? Things of outward splendor or things of inward beauty? I guess another thing, we already talked about it, but are you prepared to stand fast? And maybe it won't be full-scale persecution. Maybe it will be. But are you prepared to stand faithful in the presence of any persecution, holding on to Jesus Christ in full confidence? You know, the new thing that we're talking about here, that's us. You realize that's what, that's what we get to experience. Jesus had to get rid of the old to usher in the new, and we are part of that. We are part of that new thing, and that's a glorious thing to be thankful for the community of saints. And here's the thing, if, if we're that new thing, 
then part of our work should be to let this place and anywhere we are look more and more like His kingdom. One day He's coming back and He'll bring it in fullness. Until that time, may we seek to, through our own lives, words, actions, everything else, show the beauty and the glory and the values of His kingdom. That means people walking in the door. No one's excluded. It means this is a place of hope and joy and love because the values of the new order are here. And here's, a, here's just an odd piece of information for you. This whole text shows you that Jesus is the one who can be trusted. There's a lot of things our hearts want to get wrapped around and we want to place our faith in. This passage clearly shows Jesus is prophet, predicting this future, as Messiah, bringing it to bear. He is trustworthy in all things. Remember the first temple? It was destroyed in 586. You know what the date was? August 30th, 586 B.C. You know what the date the second one was destroyed? August 30th, 70 A.D. Weird coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence. And if you're... First hour I said, I don't know what that means if you're born on August 30th. It's not good for temples. But the flip side of that is... It does mean maybe it's the start of something new that God's doing, which is a wonderful thing. Who do you trust? Our world will tell you to trust it. Our world will tell you to trust how much you have in your retirement account. Our world will tell you to trust and you'll have meaning in life if you actually make something of yourself that the world deems is valuable. Jesus says, my word is what endures forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word endures forever. He's the trustworthy one. Stonebridge, may we follow him in faith and fervency and with passion all of our days until he either calls us home or he comes again in glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for its difficulty and requiring us to dig into it and Father, I pray that you would use this in our lives. Lord, let let us not be a people who are just asleep in your light, who are so comfortable, nothing of yours seems that important to us. Lord, help us to follow you in all ways, giving our lives to you completely. Jesus, thank you that you reign now and you are coming again. And on that day, every knee will bow and declare your glory as the king over all the universe. Jesus, we declare that today. We praise you and we stand in awe of you. To you alone be all honor and glory, wisdom and thanks. In your name we pray. Amen.